you'd open your Bibles, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 through 26. I'll be reading from the ESV, and if you use the Pewback Bible, we'll be on page 834. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I had a lesson ready for last week and I wasn't able to be here. I had a lesson ready for this week and I had a dilemma. What should, as a preacher, I preach? I wouldn't be much of a preacher if I didn't stop and take time to preach about the crucifixion of Jesus. This was last week's lesson. But I pray and I trust that this lesson will be beneficial to all of us. We get into so much of a hurry in our lives we get into so much of a fast-paced way of living that we don't take time often enough to slow down and to think about the price that was paid, to slow down and to think about the things of God. And that's what I'd like for us to do as a congregation this morning, to slow down and to think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 27. I want you to look at verses 27 through 56. We recently read this in our Let's Read the Bible program. We come to Matthew 27 and we find a description of some horrific and brutal events. This is the longest account of the crucifixion by any of the four gospel writers, Matthew's account. And the details that are recorded here are still for our benefit. They're not gratuitous. Matthew's not trying to sensationalize what happened at the cross. They're not just filler, these details. The way the events of the cross are depicted here shows us some truths that God really wants us to slow down and to reflect upon. When you look at Matthew's gospel, there are four reasons that I can discern why Matthew records the crucifixion in the way that he does. Reason number one is because Jesus' death was perpetrated by both Jews and Gentiles. And Matthew wants us to understand that. This was not just a plot of the Jews that led to the crucifixion of Jesus, even though they first arrested him and put him on trial, Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. It was the Jews to deliver Jesus over to Pilate. But Matthew has a lengthy section that we'll, we'll look at presently. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 30, where the Roman soldiers take Jesus, these Gentiles, and they make sport of him and they mock him in the most brutal way. Who's responsible for the cross? All of us are. The second reason why Matthew writes this account the way he does is to prove to us that Jesus really is a prophet. Jesus had predicted in Matthew 20 verse 19, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus prophesied that. That brings a question to my mind. Jesus knew early on in his ministry how and where he was going to die. 
If you knew that you were going to die, for example, in a plane crash, what would be your response? If you knew that your death was going to take place in a, in a plane crash, what would you do? I would avoid the airport like the plague. Jesus knew exactly where he was going to die. He knew exactly when he was going to die. And he marched resolutely to Jerusalem because he loves you so much. A third reason why Matthew records these words the way he does is to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. Matthew wants us to reflect that Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant of Isaiah. And a fourth reason why Matthew records these words, to prove to us that Jesus really is the king. Matthew's all about the king and his kingdom. In Matthew 2, verse 2, those wise men came to Herod and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. And in Matthew 27, the scripture says in verse 37 that the inscription over the cross was, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Matthew wants to prove to us that Jesus really is the king that he claims to be. Enough with the preliminaries, let's dive into what the scriptures tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew's account, we're going to look at this in three sections. We're going to look at verses 27 through 30 and consider the soldiers. And then beginning in verse 31, we're going to consider what happens on that day. We're going to consider the mockeries and the, the, the events of the cross itself. Verses 30, 32 through 44. And then we're going to discover as Christians, as we, as we study this morning, third, the wonders of the cross. The wonders that took place on that day. The soldiers, the cross itself, and finally the wonders. Notice if you would in your Bible, Matthew 27. I'm going to be reading in verse 27. Pilate has delivered Jesus to be crucified. And the scripture says the first thing that happens in verse 27 is the soldiers, and these are Roman soldiers, of the governor, they took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Your translation may have cohort. There were about 600 soldiers stationed there next to the temple in Jerusalem. And it seems that all 600 have come out to witness the spectacle. The Bible says that they have been charged with crucifying Jesus. And these men go far beyond what the orders and the requirements call for. In fact, they decide that they're going to make a sport of this. So the Bible tells us in verse 28 that they stripped Jesus and they put a scarlet robe on him, probably a soldier's cloak. If you've ever seen Roman soldiers maybe depicted in a, in, in a drawing, Roman soldiers characteristically wore red cloaks. And maybe they had an old one, a leftover one, one that had been used and worn out. And they decided that they put this on him like a king wears a scarlet or a purple cloak. Then the Bible says they twisted together a crown of thorns, verse 29, and they put it on his head and they found a stick, your Bible might say reed, and they put it in his right hand. And having done that, having dressed Jesus up like a king, a mock king, they knelt before him and they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on, his, uh, spit on him and they took the reed and struck him repeatedly, the Greek would have us to understand, on the head. They didn't just hit him once or twice, it was repeated. And when they had mocked him, 
After they'd had their fun, verse 31, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Before we leave this section and think about what the soldiers have done to him, I think a few observations are in order. Jesus took everything that they did to him. He didn't have to, you know. Back in Matthew 26, verse 53, he had said, if I wanted to, I could call for 12 legions of angels to come and destroy the world. I could uh, come and deliver me. I, and we sing that song, don't we? They, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Anytime Jesus wants this to stop, he can stop it. He's not powerless before them. And sometimes when we read about the cross, we think maybe that what is happening here is just Jesus being passive. And I would argue that is far from the truth. Jesus is making active, deliberate decisions every step of the way. What are you going to do, Jesus, when they try to put a stick in your hand, when they put a robe on you? What are you going to do, Jesus, when they twist a crown of thorns and try to place it on your head? Are you going to resist? Or are you going to decide that this is not something that I'm going to revile in return? He makes these decisions. This passage, this section with the soldiers shows us man's estimate of Christ. What do people think of Jesus really? You know, the soldiers, they probably didn't have much clue of who Jesus was in the first place. They're Romans after all, they're Gentiles after all. What do they know of Jewish prophecies of the Messiah? But these soldiers at the same time, they really hated having to be in Jerusalem. Why can't these troublesome Jews just, why can't they just behave themselves so we don't have to stay here and keep the peace? And when this purported king of the Jews comes to them, one of the reasons why they mocked Jesus so mercilessly is because they were trying to insult not just Jesus, but the Jews in general. They hated having to be there in Jerusalem. What does man think of the Christ? He's not somebody to be taken seriously, these soldiers would say. So with his mock robe and his crown of thorns and his stick in his hand, he's made to look like a theatrical figure. And don't think that things have changed that much because the television shows and the movies and the music that is produced these days, just think of how many artists, and I put that in air quotes, make a mockery of Jesus even today. People have always thought that Jesus is an object of shame and ridicule and mockery. But secondly, I want you to notice Jesus held the scepter, he wore the robe, and most importantly, he wore that crown of thorns. And the fact that he wore that crown of thorns is significant for a lost world. Consider this. You and I have been promised a crown of life. And we can only wear our crown of life if Jesus first wears the crown of thorns. If Jesus just kept his royal crown his heavenly crown, and never wore the crown of thorns. When he was on that cross, all he could say to the thief on the cross is, you're condemned. But because he wore the crown of thorns, he could say to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. 
Luke 23, verse 43. It's in the sharp thorn of Jesus' suffering that we find that the poisonous thorn of sin is drawn out of us. If he doesn't wear that crown, you and I will never be saved. There's not just a significance for the lost world, but there's a significance for us, the church. Listen to me. As you think about what those soldiers did to Jesus, this reminds us that our Lord, our Jesus, he is a king, brothers and sisters. And even though he sometimes appears to be defeated, even though sometimes he seems to be abased, he's still the king. And may the church ever find confidence in that. In his apparent weakness, he is still the mighty conqueror of Satan and sin and death. He is the overcomer of the world. That's who we trust, the people of God. It's significant what the soldiers do. It's also significant for the future. Because the day is coming when every knee will bow again. And I wonder how many of those soldiers went to their graves never having accepted the gift of forgiveness, never having come to Christ. Those soldiers who bowed their knees in mockery to Jesus will one day bow their knees in obedience to his royalty and his majesty. Philippians chapter two, verses nine through 11. The mockery of the soldiers is significant. As we consider the events of the cross, let's turn our attention secondly to the cross itself. I'd like for you to notice a number of things. As we begin in verse 32, the soldiers lead him away to crucify him. They present him first, John 19 verse five says to the Jews wearing his crown, Pilate says, behold the man. And now he's on his way to be crucified. I want you to notice some things as you look at Matthew 27 verse 32. In the first place, the burden of the cross. It was a weight. As they went out, verse 32, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Why? Because the cross was a burden. And what's fascinating about this verse is that the only thing we know about Simon, other than the fact that Mark tells us he has two boys named Rufus and Alexander, the only thing, this guy lived his life, this guy grew up and had children, had a wife. This guy may, may have lived a very full and very complete life. The only thing that's remembered about him is the fact that he carried the cross. What's history gonna remember about you? Does it really matter? People get concerned about their legacy and what I'm doing. Simon, he carried the cross. But I want you to understand this too, even though that was a burden that Simon of Cyrene could bear, Jesus was about to carry a burden that no man could bear, the burden of the cross. Look at verse 33, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. The pain of the cross, the pain of the cross. Why offer Jesus this wine mixed with gall? What's going on here? And why does Jesus refuse? Most people believe that this means that they were offering him a kind of a narcotic, something to dull the pain just a little bit. Because this was, and the word excruciating actually comes from the actual word crucifixion. Excruciating is an understatement for what Jesus is about to endure. So give him something to maybe take the edge off just a little bit. And the Bible wants us to know there was no pain. There was no event in all of this that Jesus said, this is just too much for me. 
He was drinking the cup of God's wrath as he prayed about in the garden of Gethsemane and he was going to drink it to the dregs. He was not going to stop and he was not going to do anything to deaden or dull or mitigate what happened. And we can know for a fact because of this event that Jesus was in his right mind and full of his faculties all the way till in, until the end. The pain of the cross. Notice verse 35. When they crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. The price of the cross. What did the cross cost Jesus? You know, Jesus came to this world and he didn't have a home. He didn't have a house that he lived in. Jesus was an itinerant preacher all of his life. And all he had to his name when they crucified him was his clothing. They removed that, adding to the shame of what was taking place at the cross. What did the cross cost Jesus? It cost him literally everything. Continuing. The scripture says in verse 37, over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The irony of the cross. The way the Bible depicts the cross shows us the brutality and the mockery that people made of Jesus. And at the same time, the way the Bible depicts the cross reminds us that everybody was telling the truth. They just didn't know it. Who is Jesus after all? He really is the king of the Jews. They meant it as a mockery. They meant it as an insult, but it's true. And he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. There's irony in everything that's said and done by the evildoers at the cross. Turn your attention to the mockers at the cross. There are some categories here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. There are passers-by who mock Jesus. He was crucified in a very public place and people were coming and going into the city and out of the city. So the passers-by, as they saw these men being crucified, mocked him. But not only that, verse 41, the scripture says, the rulers and the priests mocked him. And again in verse 44, even the thieves, the criminals who were crucified with him, reviled him and mocked him. And when they mocked him, they used the language of the devil all the way back in Matthew chapter four, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, every temptation began with, if you are the son of God, dot, 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 and listen to what these mockers do. If you are the son of God, if you are the king, if you really are beloved by God, and in their mouths, they're using the devil's own words. Look at what they said. As Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth, listen to what they said to him and about him. Look at verse 40. Those who passed by derided him, it says in verse 39, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus had prophesied about his own body, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll build it again. They thought he was talking about the actual temple, the physical temple. But make no mistake, they were telling the truth. If they destroy the temple of his body, he was going to rebuild it in three days. He was going to rise. Notice verse 40 again. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And ironically, if he had come down from the cross... He could not have claimed the royal title 
son of God, anointed one by God. Jesus has always been the son of God in the sense that he's obedient to God's will. He comes into this world and yet at the same time, there's a special sense in which he's the son of God by virtue of what he does in obeying God to the very end at the cross. He's declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1 verses 2 through 4. Look at what they say in verse 42. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross if we will believe in him. If you like underlining and highlighting in your Bible, you might just underline and highlight every time somebody said, come down, come down, come down. Because humanity is calling to Jesus and saying, you don't have to do this. Come down. You don't have to go through with this. Save yourself. And the irony of all of this and the mockery that's taking place is he can't have it both ways, brothers and sisters. He can't save himself and save you. He can't do both. And in mocking him so, they were arguing for their own destruction. Back in Matthew 27, verse 25, the passage that was read earlier, one of the things that the people said was, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And friends, may that ever be true of us. They were talking about his guilt. We think we're doing a noble thing, a righteous thing by crucifying this charlatan. But may it ever be true that his blood be upon us and upon our children because without his blood, there is no way that we can ever be right with God. Turn your attention third this morning to the wonders of that day. Matthew's account, verses 45 through 56, Matthew's account deals more with the miracles and the miraculous signs and the wonders than any other account of the crucifixion of Jesus. The soldiers mock him, the passers-by mock him and ridicule him, and now, beginning in verse 45, God has his say. We've heard from the Gentiles, we've heard from the Jews, what do they think about these events? What is God's view of all of this? Look at verse 45, wonder number one, the darkness. The Bible tells us that at high noon in the middle of the day, as Jesus is dying on this cross and people are mocking and ridiculing, the soldiers are casting lots for his garments, suddenly it's dark and this is not an eclipse. What's happening here? God is saying something about what's taking place at the cross. Nature itself is saying something about what's taking place at the cross. Jesus himself is the creator and it's as if all of creation sympathizes with what's happening here. One of the songs we sing about being at the cross says, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. The darkness was a mystery and nobody seems to notice, if you read the Bible carefully, nobody seems to pay much attention to the fact that it's dark for three hours in the middle of the day when the sun ought to be at its zenith. Number two, wonders. Look at verse 46, the only time in Matthew's account that Jesus is recorded as speaking. Other passages, other accounts tell us some other things that he said. But in Matthew 27, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That's Aramaic. And the reason why he tells you what he says in Aramaic is going to be revealed in the next couple of verses. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is feeling and experiencing utter anguish and despair. There's no other way to couch this. There's no other way to say it. There is loneliness 
There is grief. There is pain in those words. But why, does, why do they say this? Eli, Eli, Lamas, Bakhtadai, why do they, how do they respond to it? Look at verse 47. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, ha, this man's calling for Elijah. Eli, Eli. Oh, he's calling for Elijah. Did they not understand what he said? They were Jews. They knew Psalm 22, verse one, the passage that Jesus is quoting here. They knew he was quoting the Old Testament. They're not stupid. And they haven't forgotten their Old Testaments. But they just use this, Eli, Eli, as another occasion to mock him. And one of them at once took a rag, and, or took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the other said in verse 49, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Because they had read their Old Testaments and the Messiah was going to be preceded by Elijah, Malachi had said. Elijah's going to come before the Messiah comes. Well, let's see if Elijah shows up. The wonder here, brothers and sisters and friends, besides the mystery of what Jesus says, is the wonder of the hardness of people's hearts. People could be really mean. You shouldn't be surprised when you find people like that in your life. Because look at what they did to Jesus. How could people have hearts like that? How could people look at a dying man and make sport of it? How does that work? And when we're honest with ourselves and we're honest about what sin is, that's me too. That's you too. The wonder of the hardness of human hearts. Look again, as we think about the wonders of that day, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus chose to die, brothers and sisters and friends. He had said in John chapter 10, no one takes my life, I lay my life down willingly. Jesus is the only individual in all of history that chose to be born and chose to die. Now, some people have chosen to die by various means in their lives, but Jesus yielded up his spirit. Jesus chose to be born back in Bethlehem in the womb of Mary. He is in complete control from start to finish. Why is he doing this? Why is he yielding up his spirit? Because he loves and cares about you. And more important even than that, because sometimes we get full of ourselves, look at how much he loves me and look at how much he cares about me. He is doing this because he loves his father. He is doing this because doing the father's will is more important than life itself. There is nothing you will ever do with your life that is more important than obedience to God. And Jesus declares that as he yields up his spirit and becomes a sacrifice for our sins at the cross. The obedience the righteousness of God, it's more precious than life itself. Does Jesus love me? Absolutely. But even more than he loves me, he wants to do his father's will. And that makes me want to do my father's will as well. Notice the wonders. The veil of the temple, verse 51, is torn in two from top to bottom. There's a new way of access to God. Notice in verse 51 as well, there's an earthquake. 
An earthquake happened back at Mount Sinai when the law was first given, and now the earthquake takes place yet again when the law is finally fulfilled. And Jesus has dotted every I and crossed every T, and everything that was written and prophesied about him in the law of Moses has come to fruition. Earthquake, something momentous is taking place here. Verses 52 and 53 speak about the resurrections of righteous saints. People that had lived and died as faithful servants of God, they came out of their graves and they appeared to many, confirming that what took place at the cross, the darkness, the words, the wonders, all of those things, those have lasting power. They're not just one and done. They're not just a flash in the pan. And in verse 54, maybe the greatest wonder of all. Look at verse 54 with me. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, listen, truly this was the son of God. They weren't saying that earlier. Hail King of the Jews. But after seeing all that took place and seeing God's commentary on what was happening, the wonder of repentance, the wonder of recognition of truth. These people saw, maybe for the first time in their lives, who Jesus really is. And again, another irony, they saw what some of the most learned scholars in all of Israel would not see. Not that they couldn't see it, but they would not see it. As we think about all these matters, and how Matthew depicts the cross of Christ. I'm reminded, brothers and sisters, that everything we do, in all of the hurry, in all of the fast-paced nature of the lives we're living, it's all supposed to be because of the cross. And can I just ask you this? For God's sake, can I ask you this? Don't hurry by the cross. Don't let what we do at the Lord's Supper each Sunday be commonplace to you. There are so many details that we have yet to uncover or explain or talk about from the passage we just studied. Remember what the early saints said. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2. God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is what we're all about as the people of God. Go and live today and every day as if the price has been paid for you because he wore the crown of thorns so that you can wear a crown of life. If we can help you to obey the gospel, believe in Jesus, confess his name, repent of your sins, be baptized, come into a relationship with Jesus, you can only do it because of his blood. Won't you do that while together we stand and while we sing?